weekend, uh, I want to say thank you to Eloise Hudgens and her family, uh, and also Jen Myers. They were, Elle is one of our deacons, she's a super deacon, uh, and Jen Myers is one of our Carpenter Shelter All-Stars. Uh, people from this congregation have been serving dinner at the Carpenter Shelter on North Henry, I think for about as long as I've been alive. Uh, someone can fact check me on that. But thank you, Elle. I know RJ was there too. Uh, and thank you all for serving last week. Friday of this past week, we have been doing food distributions. You might have heard us talk about these uh, and tell everyone they're welcome to come get food or come help. We've been doing this for over two years since the pandemic started, and we had a first on Friday. Uh, does anything stand out as unique to this picture of volunteers that you see? We had our first all-male volunteer crew, and we try to do our best uh, at OTCC to live biblically, and sure enough, we had 12 men serving, <laughs> giving out food last Sunday. You see 10 there. Uh, I want to give a lot of love, too, to Bill Seward, Uh, He was doing a run to the recycling center to take the cardboard at the time, uh, and I was behind the lens. So thank you to all the the men who helped out there, and uh, all of their unique ways and gifts came to the table, and uh, approximately 150 families received eggs, bread, a variety of meats, and an abundance of produce. Uh, Alive was able to acquire a massive donation from the Amazon Fresh Warehouse that we were able to give out in front of our sidewalk. So Uh, If you want to join these disciples uh, or or be part of this crew next month, uh, the third Friday in August, 10 to noon, you are certainly welcome to come help us. So uh, every month there's there's something fun going on in ways to to get your hands dirty and serve, from Carpenter Shelter to our food distribution to Open Table every Wednesday morning. So thank you to everyone who's uh, putting your time and energy into that. So with that, let's continue worshiping in prayer together. God, we gather and worship together with a posture of thankfulness, of thankfulness for who you are and, Lord, the ways that you draw us together uh, and hold us together as followers of you and as a community uh, who is doing their best to live lives that just continue to grow and to look more and more uh, like the life we see lived through Jesus in the Gospels. God, as we gather this morning, we're aware of the reality that uh, there are some members of our congregation and of our community here uh, who are hurting. We pray for those who are in the hospital right now. We pray for those who are receiving hospice care, for those who are dealing with COVID at this moment. Uh, Lord, in in all these situations, uh, we ask that you would bring your presence and your healing to these people through ways that we know that you can, but Lord, also through us, your people the church. May we be instruments of blessing and encouragement uh, as our friends uh, battle sicknesses and, and illnesses and other predicaments. And Lord, we're also aware of the reality that there are people in our community here right now who are struggling with things that uh, we might not see or that aren't tangible or that we can't uh, put a finger on, whether it's uh, emotional distress or, or pain or loneliness. Uh, God, we know that uh, you call us to extend the church, to extend the community uh, to people who need to feel your presence and to feel your love. So Lord, in areas and spaces where um, we might not know exactly what's going on, but where we can identify hurt 
or pain or woundedness. Lord, use us to be people of peace and people that can be a blessing to those around us who need to feel your warmth and feel your presence today. Lord, we stand here uh, acknowledging the ways that you have been and that you are faithful to us. Lord, in a bit we'll look at the story of David in Scripture, and he talks about and shares the testimony that, God, you were faithful to him in the past, and he knew that you would be faithful to him in the present and in the future. Uh, And God, we thank you and acknowledge the ways that you are faithful to us in our individual lives and our families and as a church community here. And so we receive that with gratitude uh, and humility, acknowledging, Lord, how great you are and how great your faithfulness is. So, Lord, as we continue to worship you, as we uh, continue to praise your name through song, we uh, just offer these uh, as an offering up to you, our King. Amen. Stand with me now. We're going to continue singing as Hunter leads us in Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changes not thy compassions, they fail not as thou hast Thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. 
faithfulness Morning by morning New mercies I see All I have needed Thy hand hath provided Great is Thy faithfulness Lord unto me You can be seated. Thank you, Hunter. Uh, You all sound wonderful. I love that hymn. We are in Classics Reconsidered as our teaching series through the end of July. So we have David and Goliath today. We're going to look at uh, Peter walking on water next week, the prodigal son, uh, to close out at the end of the month. But I want to start this morning with some informal polling. So I need your help and participation with this. You can just Show of hands. I want to see you. You can raise your hand if this applies to you. If you're worshiping on YouTube, uh, you can type in on the chat here. Uh, But I'm curious, who here, by show of hands, listens to the entirety of a safety briefing on an airplane? Anybody till the very end? Okay, I feel a little safe. I see three hands in the sanctuary. So everybody else, you just check out four. Okay, we didn't think, you know, I know what they're going to say. I kind of feel bad for the flight attendants because people just, you know, aren't listening to them. But your, your mind goes on autopilot. You know what's coming. You don't need to listen with a deep detail. So next time you're on a plane, just think about that flight attendant. It might mean a lot if you got to the finish line of their safety briefing. Who here, by show of hands, I'm afraid this one might be less, who reads what it means when you're online and you accept all cookies on a website? Does, any, does anybody read the terms before they click accept? We have a couple. If I'm doing something wrong by just clicking the box and going on, please help me understand that more later. I just, I assume it's going to be legal and technical jargon. I click the box, I carry on, tune out. I just, I just want to read the article. So last question. I think this one might get the most hands. Who reads a full instruction manual before assembling something? All right, we've got like at least a dozen here. So when you, when you assemble something, often the first page says, read this in its entirety before starting, to which I always say, nah, like I, I, can, I can handle this. And uh, recently I was very humbled assembling an Ikea play kitchen. If anyone's done an Ikea play kitchen, that thing had layers and pieces that very much looked alike. Um, so yeah, for whatever reason, I just... I don't read all the way through to the end. I I recently assembled a new grill, and it said to download an app to follow and go step by step. I assembled that this past week and thought, okay, I will be humble. I will acknowledge someone knows more than me about this assembly. But it was only available for Apple, and I don't have an iPhone. So I just had to wing it. I took some wrong turns, but the grill was assembled. And in all of these scenarios, what's happening is... uh, if you didn't raise your hand for something, you're, just, you're making an assumption that you know what's coming uh, and that nothing about that which is ahead of you, whether it's a safety briefing, whether it's accepting who knows what in terms of cookies or reading a manual, you're just assuming, you know, I'm okay with this, I, I know what's going to happen. That doesn't make us bad people. At least I, I don't think I'm bad if I tune out a safety briefing, if I accept the cookies, or if I don't read a manual in its entirety. I think it's a natural human impulse. Uh, 
I do also believe that we can take this posture towards stories in the Bible, um, maybe even towards the Bible as a whole. But sometimes you will hear stories in Scripture and think, I know that, I've heard that, what new could there be for me amidst this passage? This might happen for you at Christmas time. If you hear, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, your mind might turn off and go in, in autopilot because every December for your life, you might have heard that Christmas story. Uh, but I believe that through the Spirit, uh, Scripture is dynamic and active uh, and, and teaches us in unique ways. And I believe this applies to the story of David and Goliath that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to reconsider this classic, and I encourage you to bring fresh eyes to it. Uh, if, if you don't receive our e-news, I encourage you to uh, fill out a connection card to do so. And the note yesterday, I shared a few details uh, that came to mind to me for the first time studying it over the last couple of weeks. One is that the victor, the person who downed uh, Goliath, was promised tax exemption for life, um, which is great for him and his family. So David, after this, by those terms, uh, didn't have to pay any taxes. Uh, I don't know to what extent his family was given tax exemption, but um, I wrote jokingly, maybe that was the nudge he needed to go out to battle and, and put it on the line. Uh, but we're going to see as we look at scripture here, David is humbly qualified and that God's desire were David's desires. So we're going to explore those two themes uh, in a little more depth after we look at the passage itself. So the story of David and Goliath comes from 1 Samuel 17. I encourage you to read that uh, in its entirety later today or later this week. It is a long chapter, uh, therefore we're not going to be able to get to every single verse and detail this morning. Uh, but we will set the scene a bit as we look at how God equipped David and how God worked through David. So I'm going to pick up reading these, these first three verses here from 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Sukkah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So that's the scene of this battle here, if you can picture it with me. The Philistines and the Israelites, they're meeting at this valley. We see it described as the Valley of Elah. And it's a pivotal point geographically. I am absolutely a map person, and, and I think it's helpful to understand what's going on in these biblical stories. These aren't uh, just kind of fairy tale places like from Lord of the Rings or something. These are you know, actual places you can visit today and that exist on a map. So the Philistines, uh, they were a coastal group of people coming from what, what is modern-day Gaza on the, the Mediterranean coast there. And you can see Jerusalem on the map there, uh, the headquarters for Israel. So naturally, the Philistines are one of going to want to go to Jerusalem if they want to challenge Israel in a real and in a meaningful way. So Israel's set up to defend. You can see the marker there in your map where this valley is today. It's funny, if you look on Google Maps and zoom in, you can see a church marking the site. Uh, and then Google also offers you recommendations of restaurants nearby uh, and places you might want to go after you're on your, your biblical pilgrimage. Um, but this warfare that we see set up here, 
is, is really interesting because warfare in antiquity was antiquated. So every day, um, if you read past verse 3 here in 1 Samuel 17, you'll see that uh, Goliath is the champion warrior of the Philistines. And he goes forward every day to fight. And every day, what happens? The Israelites get scared because they see Goliath. This happens for 40 days. Uh, I think if this were depicted in a, a movie, they might you know, charge each other and have an epic battle. But um, for 40 days, Goliath comes out. No Israelites can challenge him. Um, seems like it might be a little frustrating to be a part of this stalemate on either side. But coming at each other in a valley, we have to realize that if either side were to press their troops forward or to make that first move, their army would then be vulnerable to attack. Amongst the warriors at this time, you'd have infantry fighters who are very skilled and capable when it comes to man-to-man combat, but they aren't engaging in that yet here in these first 40 days, because doing so, if you were to descend into your valley, you'd be quite vulnerable. Now, I'm not a a war expert or uh, a scholar in this realm, but uh, there are people who've written about this, about what warfare looked like, uh, not just in antiquity, but specifically uh, around the time of David and Goliath. Uh, If one of the sides were to make that first move with their infantry men, you can picture how their artillery might have a field day and might get an upper hand in battle there. So we have this 40-day stalemate. Every day, Goliath comes out. Every day, the Israelites are scared. I wonder what that looked like in actuality. Um, But that's what we know happens for these first 40 days. Now, the the key to this story is, of course, David's slingshot. And slingshots at this time could actually be quite advanced. Uh, We picture, you know, a humble little, you know, maybe a few steps up from a handkerchief. But some modern recreations, there's even one I I read over the last couple weeks from National Geographic, notes that a well-trained soldier, uh, even in the time of the Roman Empire, uh, could slingshot uh, with the efficiency of a handgun bullet uh, with the right type of slingshot and with the right type of um, bullets used within them. So you could see why no one... Uh, really wanted to make the first move in this scenario because engaging in this short-range battle um, could leave them vulnerable to long-range weaponry. And I thought about showing a video of you know, what some of these slingshots can look like, but I'll leave that as a homework assignment for this week. Um, they're fascinating way, uh, in a fascinating way, people have tried to recreate uh, the slingshot that David might have used, and it's pretty scary. Um, I encourage you to look at that sometime. But enter David. He breaks this 40-day stalemate. He volunteers to fight. And you would think after 40 days, they would say, finally, you know, someone's, we're going to get some action here. Uh, But they push back against David. King Saul does not want him to go. So we're going to pick back up uh, in verse 33, reading through 37. So David volunteers to go. Saul, who's Israel's king at this time, replies, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. 
When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. He's talking about a lion or a bear here. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Makes a pretty compelling case for himself there. David has what I think is uh, some amazing quiet confidence here. So let's wrap up the narrative action before we think about what all of this means to us. Um, before we do that, does, does anyone here know how Goliath dies? Some people do. I'm, I'm getting this from some people. It's easy to think it was the slingshot, um, but that's just knocked him out. Let's look at how this story wraps up. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and stuck struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. That's a heck of a note to end on. And if you were in worship with us last week, uh, Sarah shared this story as part of the children's message. And I think there's good reason she didn't get too specific uh, about what verse 51 entails there. We do often stop the story at verse 50, but the battle is not finished until we see how David... um, brings this to culmination here. So David is historically understood as an underdog. You can't watch March Madness without hearing some reference of David and Goliath, whether it's the 16 verse 1 or 15 verse 2 seed. He's an underdog, and deservedly so, he absolutely was on paper. Young shepherd boy versus notorious warrior, right? Goliath wasn't just the Philistines' best on that day. We see in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath was a warrior from his youth. Goliath was known as a fighter, and the fact that he is alive and there and their chosen one uh, clearly indicates he's been successful. All this being said, I believe an argument can be made that David might not have been as much of an underdog as we think when we consider the big picture. David was absolutely humbly qualified. He was qualified and called for this task. And we see throughout this passage, throughout David's life before and going forward, God's desire was David's desire. So let's look at at David's humble qualifications. Uh, This is something that excites me in general, not just in the passage here, but in the life of the church. It might not surprise you, but I genuinely just love the 
breadth of life that is a church community. Uh, people from all sorts of, of backgrounds and places coming together to, to serve God together. And the church is made up of people who, like David, are humbly qualified. And I mean this in a, a lofty spiritual way, but also in a very practical way. So in a spiritual sense, we are humbly qualified because we are followers of Jesus. We know that we're redeemed and we're made whole as a result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so we're humbled by that and we're qualified because we know that God calls us and we see in the Great Commission in Scripture, we are commissioned to do the work of God. So yes, there's a handful of churchy words in there, but in that lofty spiritual sense, we are humbly qualified. In a practical sense, people in the church absolutely are too, because our gifts, simply put, can be used and can be utilized for God's purposes. From where I stand right here, having served in churches for approximately 10 years, one of my absolute favorite things to do is to see God's people use their practical skills to serve God and for the good of, of making God's name known. As I was thinking about this over the last week, I was remembering before I came here and moved to Old Town, I lived in North Carolina, which is where I went to school, served a variety of churches there, and I served one in Winston-Salem, and I had so much fun there. Has anyone been to Winston? It's a cool place. It's really cool. I lived in the parsonage across the street from the church uh, and had so much fun at that congregation. During this time, somebody kept graffitiing the side of the church, and why? There's so many places you could graffiti, a bridge, I don't know, a parking lot. But somebody kept graffitiing the side of the church right next to the cemetery, too. I mean, have some respect, so, but these people didn't. Uh, what they did, they were quite good at it, but the location was terrible. Um, you know, I joked that we should put a note to direct them elsewhere to do their art. Um, but there was a church member at this congregation who had a power-washing business, and he loved being called. He loved when there was graffiti on the church walls. And, you know, I'm smiling because I remember this guy. He was awesome. But it was very serious, a very serious calling for him. This is what he felt called by God to do, to serve the church uh, and to make God's house look beautiful on the exterior. And he had a, a concoction he would whip up with soap and bleach and all this, and scrub it on and power wash it off. And I just got to sit back and smile and watch it. And it, it made me so happy seeing him with his, his humble qualifications of owner of a small power washing business um, just serve in this really practical way. And it, it made me really happy, and I think it made God happy too, to see how his humble qualifications were being put to work. Similarly, here in this congregation, I see gifts utilized all the time, from the community, to the volunteers, to the deacons, to members of the Servant Leadership Council, using their God-given gifts to serve just in very, very practical ways. And if you don't feel like you can quite articulate your gifts, or if you're wondering if you even are truly gifted, I want the story of David this morning to remind us that each of you each one of us here are humbly qualified to serve God and to make God's name known like David was. 
David was, was qualified because of who he was, but he was also prepared for this moment in 1 Samuel 17 as a shepherd. He cared for his sheep. When predators messed with his flock, David would pick them off, as we saw him recount to King Saul. So now when a predator of another sort, when David, when Goliath comes out, when he comes after Israel, David is able to protect the people and he's able to pick him off as well. So think back to the types of fighters I was describing in the valley coming towards one another. When you take the legend and when you take the emotion out of it with Philistines and Israelites meeting in the valley, Israel really did send out a long-range marksman to a short-range battle. Yes, David was the underdog. He wasn't the notorious warrior from life. But that's one way we can reconsider this classic. Because if slingshots were remotely as powerful as scholars suspect they might have been, if David was as experienced as a shepherd as he testifies to, maybe it's not that surprising that David that Israel and that ultimately God reigned supreme on the battlefield that day because of David's faithfulness and because he put his humble qualifications into action. When you consider your gifts, the ways that God has called you, the ways that you too are humbly qualified, it shouldn't always come as a surprise to us when God calls us to be his instruments to work in and to work through us, both individually in our own lives and collectively as a church community. So how is it, a question I want you to take away from this story of David and Goliath, is how are you faithfully preparing yourself for challenges that'll come in life? What is it that you're doing on a week-to-week basis that will prepare yourself for a challenge, for a trial, Uh, for something that people might describe as a predicament. Shepherd David wasn't doing his job as a shepherd, wasn't defending his flock from predators because he knew maybe one day he'd fight Goliath. And if he can handle a lion and he can handle a bear, maybe he could handle a big Philistine. That wasn't David's objective as a shepherd. He was just doing his job well, faithfully, and consistently caring for his father's flock. And sometimes that's what it takes, consistent faithfulness in your day-to-day calling. That's what God is using to equip you when you may enter a challenging season in life. Such preparation is simple, it's effective, and here in 1 Samuel 17, we see it pay dividends for David and for God's people in a massive, massive way. We've been in the Old Testament where the story takes place, but uh, this concept is something driven home a little more uh, in the New Testament as well. We can look in uh, some of the Pauline letters in Colossians. Uh, Paul writes, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're going to read 1 Samuel 17, later this week, I'd encourage you to look at Colossians 3 as well. This chapter is Paul encouraging Christians stepping into their new lives marked by their identity in Christ. 
So he's equipping people who have converted to Christianity in this city about what it looks like to live with your identity being fully in Jesus. And this attitude of whatever you're doing, doing it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God, is a posture that we see David having as a shepherd and that we see David having as he advocates for himself ahead of battle. So does this describe the posture you have when it comes to your week-to-week tasks, whether that's in the workplace or around your house, in your social circles? A person who is humbly qualified, like David, will be the one who, in whatever they do, whether in their words or in their actions, works for God while giving thanks to God. David was prepared for that as a shepherd. If we want to be prepared for trials, whether big or small, I encourage you to make Colossians 3.17 your motto. Put it on your bathroom window. Put it on your steering wheel, your phone lock screen. Because then when you face a giant or when challenges come your way, if this is the posture and the disposition that you carry, your spiritual muscles are engaged and ready to go when you're in a season of trial, temptation, or challenge. David's humble qualifications set him up very, very well for that battle. Last thing we're going to look at is the reality that David's desire was God's desire. We saw when David surfaced the idea of going out to fight Goliath, it wasn't met with celebration. They didn't say, yes, after 40 days of our people being scared. We've got someone who's willing. Saul, the king, laughs off David in verse 33. But remember what David said in response. The first thing David noted was that God had delivered David in his past, and God would deliver him here. This is a theme throughout David's life. We're fortunate to have quite a bit of content on David throughout the Old Testament Uh, and echoes of that in the new as well. Though David's resume is far from flawless, he, he might not get hired at some places today, but David wanted what God wanted. He wanted peace, he wanted order, and he wanted faithfulness from and for God's people. The Apostle Paul, who penned that verse in Colossians I read earlier, Elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Acts, the the narrative book that talks about how the gospel spreads throughout the world at the time, Paul is preaching and teaching, and he references David, and he remembers David as a man after God's heart. I can't think of many better accolades that we should want to be known by. If that's in the first couple lines of one of our obituaries, I think that's a life well-lived. So are our desires God's desires? If you think about that which you really want, what you're thinking about during the week that you want for your life, for your community, for your world, is there overlap? If we had a Venn diagram, would there be overlap with that which God wants? This is a, a simple measuring stick we can use as we think about our lives in light of David's life that we encounter in Scripture today. 
when God looks at the city of Alexandria or when God looks at your family or when God looks at your workplace, what do you think God truly wants? God wants his name to be trusted. God wants his name to be known. Just like on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17. There was a battle on the surface, but deeper down, the Philistines were challenging God's authority and God's power. They were making a mockery of it, which makes David's bravery even more magnified here. God wants his name to be trusted and known today. God wants healing in situations that are broken. God wants justice when people are overlooked. And God wants redemptions in situations and in relationships where there's no hope. These need to be things that we don't just want as a church, but as God's people that we are actively pursuing to make God's desires our desire. In the same way, David's matched his desires with God on the battlefield. We're called as Christians to live lives that pursue God's priorities and lives that bear fruit like the Apostle Paul again articulates in Galatians of fruits of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If our desires are aligned with God's, those will be the fruits that people see coming from the actions of our lives. Last thing from David's story, uh, I really want to magnify the reality that David kept it real. Um, When it was decided that David was going to go out and fight Goliath, Saul tried to give him big, clunky armor. And David straight up says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. He might feel silly wearing Saul's big regal armor. And in this snapshot, I think David is so human. Uh, And I actually think it's a little hilarious. Like, imagine that exchange. Like, no, I can't wear these. Uh, I'm I'm just going to take what I know. David went into battle with what he was familiar with, and he trusted God, and he trusted himself. And that reality should be reassuring to us because we don't have to be anybody else to serve God. We don't need to put on a different demeanor or outfit or language. David was having none of that when Saul gave him the option of wearing this armor. David felt like he might be fake if he's wearing this unfamiliar garb. And like David, we need to be the people that God called us to be as we faithfully align our desires with God's desires. And that is a freeing reality. When we look at David going out on the battlefield, before we know what happens, we might be scared about his fate. Uh, But as we see how the story unfolds, we see his confidence in himself and that which God had been doing in his life to equip him. So it's my desire that none of us have to step into battle with a Philistine giant this week. Uh, if that happens, please call me. Uh, we, have, we have people here who would like to help. But today, here in 2020, you're going to get into situations that are intimidating. You're going to get into situations that are stressful, that are scary, or where you might just want to hide and do nothing. So 
when you approach these encounters, remember that like David, you are humbly qualified, both in that spiritual sense because of Jesus, but in that really practical sense because of the ways God is equipping you. We have God's Spirit living and working in and through us, and our God-given gifts can align with God's desire through the world to save it, to make it known, to make God's name known, and to redeem the world through Jesus. So we thank God for this story this morning, the ways that we can look at David's example to encourage us, to empower us, even when it feels like there's a giant problem in our path. So in the week ahead, let's take this humble authority uh, as something that we have a lot of pride in. Let's match our desires with God's desires. And I truly believe that with this, with this example from David, we'll realize we are even more capable than we might have realized to do the work of God, no matter what's in our path or what might be slowing us down. Amen? Pray with me. God, remind each of us through your spirit of the ways that we are qualified, of the ways that you equip us by your grace solely because of who you are. And Lord, in the ways that you've equipped us with the skills and desires and passions that you've laid on our hearts. God, help us match our desires up with yours. Help us be faithful to you in everything that we do so that, Lord, when we face a challenge or when we face a trial, uh, Lord, we know you intimately. uh, And turning to you is, is not just an option, God, but something that's second nature. So, Lord, thank you for being there for us. Thank you for the ways you were there for David, you were there for Israel, and the ways that you are here and present for each of us and for OTCC today. In Jesus' name, amen.